0: Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TSC Audio Project. On this episode of Nerd Talk, I have a second conversation with Matt O'Mara. Matt is the food team leader with the footner Program, and we had a great chat about some practical tips when it comes to improving food choices. We riff on some tiny changes everyone can start to make when it comes to food. We talk about navigating the supermarket, and we finish with why spending more on food works out to be cheaper in the long run. Really enjoyed the conversation with Matt, and I hope you find the episode to be helpful and useful in your own life. This episode of the show is brought to you by TFC app. Our team embarked on a mission in April of 2019 to create a digital home for our global TFC community to access good quality information when it comes to health. Our tribe of foot nerds has created or curated videos, blogs, podcasts, and even books that have guided us on our journey until now in hopes that the information can help others. The internet is a really big place, and our goal with TFC app was to distill the best content and offer it for free through the app. Our goal is to keep the platform self-funded so that we can avoid plastering with ads, and we also aim to constantly improve and evolve the experience with your feedback guiding us on how to do that. To check out the app, you can head to the footcollective.app, which is a website, and you'll basically have the option to use either the web version or download the iOS app. We're also working on making it available for Android. And by the time this goes live, it should be available there as well. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this unique company has an awesome subscription service that delivers you fresh beans to your door every month, along with the story of each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. If you check out theroasterspack.com and use the code foot at checkout, you get seven bucks off your first month. Last but not least, this episode is sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear to and from movement sessions, seminars, or workshops. They make super high-quality hard cases in Canada, which keep your electronics safe when you travel, and you can check out their stuff at nanook.com. That's it for sponsors. Let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Today, I'm speaking with foot nerd, Matt O'Mara to dig deeper into a few concepts related to food. Uh, Matt and I recorded our first episode together about three weeks ago, and we wanted to expand on a few topics we didn't get a chance to dig into. So, Matt, thanks for taking the time this morning, and welcome again to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks again for having me, Nick.
0: Cool. So, I mean, this one's kind of nice. We can, we've already shared a bit about you and the foot nerd program in our first episode, so I think let's just dig right into it and... Um, like we spoke about, I think the focus today is just practical stuff, right? Simple advice that everyone can implement right away because I think that's really what people truly need. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about you doing uh, some work to kind of revamp the um, Footnote program content related to food, we kind of, you know, the concept of explaining food like you're explaining it to a 12-year-old kind of passed through the radar. And I think <laughs> – yeah. Um, I think that's very powerful because it, you know, for the average person that's sort of lost or confused when it comes to food, that explanation really is, it makes you just simplify things and bring out the essence. So, um, why don't we start with just tiny changes that people can start making? So if someone says, Hey, Matt, I need to make changes with, um, the way I view food or my relationship with food. What are some, uh, small things that aren't intimidating um, that people can get started with. And we'll just kind of riff. We, maybe we can go tic-tac-toe and uh, each yeah. talk about one and why maybe that's uh, an appropriate suggestion we feel.
1: I think, um, so when you know when, when we talk about food and small changes, um, there's kind of like, a, there's definitely two sides to this. And I'll talk about both of them. But one of them is uh, you can start adding foods, which is, I think, the easiest way to start. So essentially, when you go to the grocery store, Um, you're just throwing in maybe a couple new vegetables or um, something to add to a salad. And I think that's like, I think that's the easiest way. It's just like by addition, slowly adding more nutrients into your life. Cool. Um, And then kind of like the one that's, it's more effective, but it's a little bit harder um, is removing foods that you know are, you know, either difficult for you to digest or in general aren't healthy. Um, this is the one where people will see the most change to their health. Um, so, you know, a great example is, if you drink dairy products and you're like a little bit lactose intolerant, and a lot of people are, um, but you still consume them because you don't mind it that much, um... If you remove dairy products, you're going to get a lot of health into your digestive system because you're going to remove that, you know, maybe low-grade inflammation it's been causing for years or decades, um, which is going to let, you know, so many other things thrive in your gut. Um, but again, that's hard because if you're really like into cheese and that's like part <laughs> of what you eat, you know, that's a, it's a pretty tough conversation to have with someone. Right, um, right. So, I love, so, yeah. I love what you said there
0: about, because, you know, going into behavior design and just kind of understanding, like, how do people, how do people embark on this process of sustainable change, right? Not the diet, but like the, I want to change on, on mm-hmm. a permanent basis um, to feel better and to have a better sense of control over my health. And in particular today, the food pillar of my health. I think you, we have to start so small so that there's basically no question that it's achievable. And a lot of people, when you first kind of mentioned that their hesitation is that, well, I want to actually make big changes. And it's like, well, the on-ramp to making big changes is starting with something so small that it would be, it seems almost trivial. And I love what you said of just like, every time you do groceries, buy one vegetable that you haven't bought before. Um, And I think, I think part of what that does is actually gets them sort of improves their confidence in, in embarking on experimentation mode right? Like, it's so comfortable at, to buy what you've always bought. And so going outside of that bubble of comfort, that habit bubble, I think sets a precedent for that. It's almost like the first domino. It's like, oh, I tried that vegetable and it actually tasted really good. And I didn't even know it tasted that good. So I'm going to try a different one. And it kind of can set the ball in motion. So yeah, adding one thing and then um, dairy is a hard one for a lot of people. But I lived with someone who who was basically in their experimentation phase she said, like, I think dairy might be affecting me negatively. So we kind of like the first two weeks, you miss the cheese, you miss ice cream. Um, but then after that, you actually, you know, like these almond milks and stuff like that, that I put in my coffee or, um, you know, just coconut ice cream instead of it being dairy. There's so many good substitutes now that it actually wasn't that hard. And I, I literally have no desire to go back to dairy. So,
1: Yeah. No, and I think that's a great example. And, you know, another great way, you know, just on the dairy thing, because I think it's, you know, an area where a lot of people get caught um, because, you know, a lot of people consume dairy, right? Like whether you're an omnivore or a vegetarian, like unless you're like kind of a full vegan, dairy is generally a part of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the great recommendations I have for people if you're like slightly intolerant and you know it's like causes an issue in your system is just to stop buying it, like stop having it in your house And it will become, it will be available in other places. You'll go over to a friend's house, you'll go, um, you know, out for dinner and and there will be like cheeses and those kind of stuff available. And if you consume it that infrequently, you know, like once or twice a month, for most people, that's not going to create a problem at all. And then you're removing the temptation of having it in your house all the time. Um, So you've kind of, that's like another really easy step to take is just to not like have it in your house, but don't restrict yourself fully from it.
0: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point on multiple levels. I think one, if you're eating it more infrequently, then it actually creates probably a more obvious sort of um, case of how do I actually feel like I haven't eaten dairy all week, I ate it at a friend's house, I feel terrible now, it can almost like highlight the fact that maybe dairy is affecting people negatively, whereas if they're eating it on a regular basis, that is just their norm, right? Maybe not feeling great is just the norm. So it's hard to actually identify that dairy is not something that agrees with your system. And I also think that there's definitely some benefit of not going full out, like black and white, right? Like people, I think when you make something off limits, it part of you, part of you wants to eat it more. (laughs) And it's this weird thing that we do where we just go full on. And then kind of get disappointed when we're not able to succeed. And I think having flexibility built into it by, like you said, not buying it, but not restricting yourself when the opportunities come up. um, I think, I think that's a really good call. That's a great idea.
1: Yeah. And I think like what you're talking about there is like the difference between, you know, what we in kind of the Western world call a diet versus a lifestyle, right? Like a yeah. diet is very restrictive and it has these rules that you follow. So it kind of creates the opportunity for either something that's success or failure, whereas a lifestyle is more just fluid, right? You're kind of moving in and out of different eating patterns with an idea that you're moving towards kind of like a healthy state for your own body.
0: Yeah. And, I think another small change that I had a discussion with, uh, with someone the other day, I know that this person doesn't basically cook anything. Um, they often will, they're, they're pretty good uh, a lot of the time and that they'll, they'll opt for uh, better quality prepared foods. But the fact that they were always going somewhere to buy their meal made them way more intimidated by the act of cooking. And so sometimes when they couldn't access a good meal, they just didn't have a sense of confidence or, or any skills to actually know how to put something together. And so for them, I just said, you know, like, maybe it's once every two weeks, or maybe once a week, just cook one meal, prepare one meal from individual primary ingredients into something that you feel like eating. And it might be extremely simple. It might literally be like egg, make eggs yourself one morning. But I think cooking, starting with not, it's not like cook every meal, it's try one, and then just start building a sense of confidence and skill that you can prepare something from raw ingredients to finished products. Um, Because I think cooking and cooking doesn't include putting something in the microwave or putting something uh, (laughs) in the oven, (laughs) like microwave is a big one, but but like even putting something in the oven, I don't really, if you haven't made that, if you don't actually know what went into that, um, even if it's good, which is not bad, it's not a bad thing to do if you know where it came from, like for example, there's a really good scratch kitchen in Ottawa, and I'll, I'll go there sometimes and get one of their um, things that I know they made within the past two days and and stick it in the oven. But I think there is definitely some value to actually engaging in preparing food. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think this is kind of like the, having a relationship with food and, and you know, it's, it's empowering to be able to cook your own meals 100% and especially be able to cook nutritious meals. Um, you know, one of the big things is that if you can afford to eat out regularly, the quality of food you can afford to cook at home is even higher than what you can afford to buy. Because, right. you know, even though it doesn't seem like it like much, you know, every, you know, $7 here, $10 there. If you add it up over the course of a month, you end up being able to buy free, you know, if you cooked at home, like really organic, like high quality stuff. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing to always remember in terms of like, like health is that, uh, any company that cooks for you has a bottom line that, you know, they need to make a profit. Um, so they will do that by, you know, it's not like intentionally cutting corners to make you unhealthy, but you know, they're going to buy the cheaper oils. They're going to buy the cheaper products that are like kind of like meet the minimum requirements to say, call it organic or to call it healthy. Um, so you're, you're never getting the highest quality stuff in my opinion. Um, when you go and eat out just because there's, there's, because there's that financial incentive, um, it's really rare for someone to go all out and create you like phenomenal meals. And if they do, you're paying a lot more for it. You know, you're not, you're paying 40 or $50, you know, just for one meal.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think running a restaurant is super, super hard to be able to run a successful restaurant and do it in a way that is still prioritizing health. Um, is really difficult. So I don't blame restaurants for doing that, but you're, that's a very valid point in that you're still paying someone something to prepare your food and what you would be paying them. You could easily pay yourself with your own time and invest those extra dollars into the raw ingredients to make something better or make something more delicious or more nutritious. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny because some of the same people that tell me it's really expensive to buy healthy food actually eat out so often. It's crazy. And there's just no—it's like the dots aren't being connected. Where they've created this obstacle to eating healthy and preparing food, and they're not really seeing the fact that they often go out and buy food and aren't really too picky about how healthy it is. They're just going out for a meal. Um, so it's 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 just like an awareness thing, I think, for the most part, where people just—I fundamentally think that people don't understand how impactful food is on how you feel and your health. So until we can fix that be really hard to get buy in from people, but I think the common culture uh, is such that we're we're i don't know in my inner circle, I definitely see a higher uh, value placed on food. I certainly feel that in myself in the past couple of years, um, so hopefully that trend sort of continues
1: yeah, and you know food eating well and moving well if, if you if people do that, you know I usually tell them you know just take a couple of weeks and eat well, move well. Uh, And then just, you know, keep a journal or something. And most people like they feel quite a bit better because they end up like, you know, it's has this huge effect where you eat well and move well. Well, then you sleep better. Well, then your mood is improved. Well, then you make better choices. And then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks down the road, you've snowballed into like a pretty solid place. Um, and most people have been there before and they kind of know, and I I think it's always just that initial, you know, that initial domino, that's like all it usually takes, but I think it's a, it's really hard domino to knock over for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And I think another, um, small change that people can sometimes make is I think, I think a lot of people, well, I mean, this is, I'm just speculating, but I know that I have some friends who are way more into food who see food as way more important and spend the time and energy to cook their food. And literally just spending an extra little bit of time with that friend that cares more about food or that is <laughs> has a significantly heightened sense of how food is important, that rubs off on you so much. And when you see them doing certain habits or thinking certain ways, and oftentimes those people are are more than happy to tell you about it, um, which sometimes goes too far on the continuum. But <laughs> but at least people that I know they are like, you know, they want to inform you without seeming overbearing. And if you're that friend for people, you can also, you know, you have to find the delicate balance in how you talk to this stuff about people. You don't want to make them feel like shit because they're not eating exactly like you, but there's definitely, (laughs) there's definitely an art to having conversations where you want to educate without preaching. Um, so even just spending a little bit more time or, or calling up a friend that knows about food and being like, Hey, can you, can you help me out? I'm really struggling with my food situation, but I know it's important. Um, I'm sure they'd be happy to, to, to chat with you.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, um, you know, for people out there with knowledge, like I find like, I have a pretty decent knowledge these days and unless people ask me, I, I don't ever preach or talk about it. Um, I find it's just like a bit of a, it's too, too much time for me to kind of like try to preach something to someone that's not ready to hear it yet. And I find if someone's not like initially interested, if they don't have like that, you know, internal kind of drive to learn, um, they're just not ready for it. Um, so I've personally found that, you know, unless engaging like in, in chats with you or, you know, working in my clinic where people engage in nutrition, I, I actually rarely chat about it outside unless someone like approaches me directly about it. Um, and a lot of people know that I do nutrition stuff and, you know, I find very few people approach me about it until until they're ready. And when they're ready, they kind of are like, "All right, like uh, this is what I'm been having. I think nutrition can help. Where do I start?" Um, and I think that's why these chats are good, is because you know having these kind of podcasts or just basic information of like, "All right, I'm ready to like open the door and start, but what do I do?" I think you know, there's not, there's not as much information out there. There's, there's a lot of great information on how to like become the healthiest person possible and, you know, live <laughs> off kale forever. Um, you know, on kind of that kind of idealistic perspective, but there's, there's less kind of on like, all right, I have, you know, I, I spend $400 a month on food. I eat out quite a bit, like, but what's the first step towards eating healthy? Um, so that's why I think it's nice to do these chats because it's, it's an easy place to point people towards. Yes. I was just going to say that because I
0: have a lot of people that reach out once in a while, I'll dig into the black hole of DMS on Instagram. And some people are like, Hey, where's the best place for food knowledge. And it's really nice to be able to say, you know, we, we just did an episode on food, have a listen to that and see what you think. Maybe it'll direct you to deeper, a deeper learning path. And you're right. Cause otherwise it's just like this massive world of food. And obviously like certain books, like, um, you know Michael Pollan's books, for example, I find are you know in defense of food is a very digestible, no pun intended, uh, book for <laughs> for a lot of people because it's it's spoken from the perspective of someone not needing a whole lot of info to really get the powerful points. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, if a podcast like this where we're talking specifically about pragmatic stuff, where it's conversational, so you can literally listen to this when you're driving or going for a walk. I think these are you know, for the people whose ears are now open, it's, you're right. It's great to save you having to have a conversation a hundred times by just being like, here's a good start. And then let me know what else you need. Um, and I can definitely relate to the, like when I stopped trying to talk to people about health, I got way more people reaching out in my family <laughs> about health. It's like the minute <laughs> yeah. you're not the person who's like the weirdo that always wants to tell me to be healthy. People are like, Oh, I see what you're doing and how you eat and how you move. And Tell me a little bit more about this because I find it interesting. So yeah, it's funny how that works.
1: No, that's that's the way it goes, right? Like, uh, I think if you if you seek out people and kind of preach to them a bit, it almost comes as if, like, you know, you're coming from a higher position, which people don't like, or, or you're mm-hmm. kind of, like, being negative towards their lifestyles, which is, you know, not an approach that I know either of us like to have. And it's really important for people to kind of come to you and be like, I acknowledge that some of the stuff I've been doing is maybe not the best for my health, but I don't know where to go from here. But again, it's kind of like food is so... Individual, you know, so is movement. So so many things that you've got to have that like internal acknowledgement that you need to change, and then you have to have the drive to make that change, Um, right? And before that happens, you're, yeah, it can it can be a waste of breath to chat to people. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. And I find you often turn people away if they're not ready to hear something, and you're just trying to ram it in their ears. It actually yeah, or you can scare people away real fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think another tiny little thing that I've uh, got into not long ago was actually to grow something, to grow a plant. Like I have these little, tested out these little arrow Garden, um, like hydroponic, hydroponic kitchen little units. Um, they're made yeah. in Denver, and they're only like 150 bucks was a small one. But basically, they send these little seed pods. You fill it up with water. The you put plant food in once in a while, and literally does everything for you. And every single day when I come downstairs, these these lights go on at 5 a.m. And it reminds me that food is life because I see something growing that I have to take a bit of care of. And once in a while, like every day, I'll just take a leaf off of like the basil or something like that and eat it and remind myself that, like, you know, food is life. We need to focus on like having a better relationship with the food we eat. And I think it's just a, I don't know, I just found that having something that I'm growing visible to me every day was a really, potent daily reminder that of what food is and a reminder to the kind of relationship we should be having with food so even if it's just a little single herb that you're growing um that you can use when cooking and like literally the satisfaction of taking a like i used to go and buy um some locally made non bread, hummus, and tabbouleh. And now instead of buying tabbouleh, I just like pick away at all these little plants and stick them <laughs> on the non bread and hummus. And like, it's, for some reason, it's extremely satisfying. Maybe that's just me, but I think growing something is a big step in the right direction towards food relationship.
1: Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. You know, it's just the closer your connection is to the food you eat, the, the more like, well, connected you feel to it, right? Yeah. So, and it just helps everything.
0: And I mean, obviously, in, like, what's your growing? Do you grow anything? And what's your growing season like over there? Because, I mean, we're... Yeah, we're, we're pretty fortunate here.
1: here. Yeah, so we're kind of... So I'm in uh, Comox, right, on like, uh, like middle of Vancouver Island. So we're, in terms of Canada, we're in one of the probably better growing regions. Yep. Um, so we, you know, we get snow if we do get it for maybe two or three weeks out of the year. Um, and then, you know, the winters are pretty wet and rainy here, but in the winters you can still grow like kale and garlic and stuff. And then in the summer, kind of from like, you know, mid April till October, you can have a pretty decent garden. Um, so I have two kind of garden boxes. So they're four foot by eight foot, you know, and about two feet deep, um, with kind of this organic soil compost blend in them that we top up every year um and you can grow a lot like we grow you know root veg um all different types of greens you know arugulas kales chards um broccolis lots of peas and carrots um got some beets and radishes coming up now um i recently i was at the farmer's market and we got something called a salad turnip which was like delicious and i'd never had one before and it's be quite different from another turnip they're a bit sweet and you can like slice them thinly on salads. So my next venture will be to attempt some salad turnips. But awesome. yeah, we can grow a lot here and we do have a great year. And we actually have a lot of great uh, like wild foraging, lots of berries, lots of mint. Like there's just, it's it's pretty nice here on the island for that stuff. That is amazing. And it's
0: funny because even like when I, I usually go to Australia in January and link up with all the nerds down there and like everyone grows food. And it's so cool to see how it's like this like it's this subconscious thing in the footner community where everyone seems to be connected on different layers that, you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't surprise me, but it was also so cool to go to like Andy's place and have a, have a meal with him. And everything that we ate was basically picked from the garden, except for, um, some meat that we ate, even he has got chickens. And it's like, it was like a wild, a wilderness reserve in his backyard. And it was amazing. Um, they had these plums growing and me and James, me and James almost like felt sick because we ate so many of them because they were so damn delicious. <laughs> but um, it's really, I just think that being part of your own food chain and growing something, um, is just so, it's so fulfilling. And it's really, what i found is that it's hard to, it's hard to communicate how satisfying it is to people who haven't done it. It's one of, it's just one, it's kind of like going barefoot actually. It's like, but once people do it, then they get it. And I was the same way. I know because I was the same way. And uh, yeah, it's just really, really. And, and I think one of the biggest things that makes you realize is that the, the nutrient density of the food is directly related to the flavor. And that fresh oh, food yeah. is so much better. And you can tell that to people all day and they're just like, yeah, whatever, I go to the grocery store. It's like, yeah, but when you eat recently, very recently living food, it is like, So it's not even on the same like wavelength.
1: No, and I I agree with that 100%. I think one of the best examples of that is tomatoes. Um, Tomatoes are usually picked pretty far away. They're usually picked green and then ripened with uh, like a gas to make them red like before they put them out in the stores. Um, so they're picked on ripe and then they're ripened with the gas. And this is like, you know, common procedures in grocery stores. So you have this one tomato that's essentially like red water, you know, with a bit of a right. consistency to it. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're, they're not bad, but they're just kind of like, um, they just add a little bit of like essentially moisture. That's about it. And then, you know, you go to someone's house that has a nice greenhouse and you walk into a greenhouse where they're growing tomatoes. And the first thing that always hits you is the smell of the tomatoes in the greenhouse, like pretty strong and you go in and there's the smell of the soil and the tomatoes and you bite into one and they're just phenomenal. And you're like, you know, is this actually the same plant? And <laughs> it's, it's, I think that's one of the best ways for people, like, cause you know, everyone's for the most part has had tomatoes, right? Um, to actually, so to actually go and taste and then you realize, you know, this applies to all, all the food or most of the food in our grocery stores, most of the food has been picked on right. Meaning mean, it hasn't had time to like, you know, get all of its flavors and nutrients properly. It's been, you know, ripened artificially or frozen or kept in a form. You know, like it's just been played with so much, you know, and this right. is, you know, even organic produce and that kind of stuff that it, it just gets, you know, you just get it slowly, slowly removed. So it really becomes two different experiences and I think that's why when people get back into gardening or back into like just growing their own food, you know, just like going barefoot, you get this connection again to, to nature and the environment and the systems, which our bodies have had for, you know, our cells are kind of been aware of for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And only recently we've started to kind of detach from it. So, like, as soon as we get that again, we're like, wow, this is exactly what I want. And your body's like, you know, this is exactly what we want, too. This is like what <laughs> yeah. nourishes our cells. This is what makes you like human in a way. Um And I think that's why it's so powerful for people. And, you know, once they start down the path of, you know, walking barefoot and just eating a little bit more homegrown, um, I think that's why it's hard to, to go back. You know, it's kind of like you think the grass is greener on the other side and you get there and it actually is greener. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you realize
0: how shitty the grass was before.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You weren't even on grass. It was just turf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy.
0: And I think, I think farmers markets can do a lot of that too. And I, I think one of these, always tell people the extra nutrient I get when I go to farmers market is you get to communicate with a person who literally cares about food. Like that is what they do. That is what their purpose is. And I think that when you know that the dude or dudette that you shook hands with and spoke to was the one who cared deeply about growing something very nutritious for you, there's something with the way that that food is processed. I think if you're really thinking of that, um, and I'm just, like one thing I'm trying to do, and it's, it's a hard habit because I haven't done it my whole life, is like do a little mental ritual before I eat or drink anything. Whether that's just saying like one thing that I'm, I'm grateful for uh, or thankful for. You know, like thank you, uh, I'm thankful. And it's just mental. I don't say it out loud, but it's just like I'm thankful for the person who put the energy into actually making this. And it might seem very small. And at first it felt kind of silly. It felt like I was forcing it. But now if I, I literally believe in it wholeheartedly that it's becoming a wired habit and I think it's a I think it's probably affecting and like I freely admit I placebo the shit out of myself all the time but I don't really <laughs> see the difference I think it's affecting the way my body's processing food when I acknowledge some sort of thankfulness for the fact that I actually get this food and that I, I kind of you know understand a deeper layer if it was from a farmer's market or if from something that I grew and you know the thing you said about tomatoes is like I think I think there's like this lack of understanding when it comes to knowing that that tomato was grown in soil. That is the only reason that soil can grow that tomato is because we've put the bare essentials into that soil to manifest and grow that tomato. But the bare essentials are very different than what optimal soil conditions are. And I think we're tuned. I think part of our, our flavor and, and, you know, mouth pleasure receptors are tuned to, nutrients. So when you eat something really nutrient dense, the reason it tastes so good is because part of your brain is saying, yes, do more of that. And I think we've just lost the fact that most of the stuff we buy looks perfect, but is devoid of a lot of the micro, the little tiny nutrients that play a part in some way, shape or form in our bodies and our processes as whether it's like as enzymes or coenzymes or whatever it might be. And even though they're not essential to avoid disease, they are important for optimal function. And that's something I definitely didn't appreciate it until I, I think it was food fix or something like that I watched the documentary and I was like wow I did not understand food but I understand it better now
1: yeah no totally and I you know I think there's a like a pretty common saying that's you know overfed and undernourished um, mm-hmm. that applies to a lot of the western world now and it's really true that like you know one of the reasons that why people like really you know overeat or over consume food is because they're eating food that is you know like a nutrient desert and the body knows it needs some nutrients but it doesn't know how to specifically ask for them so essentially you're just hungry right like if you eat you know white bread with uh i can't believe it's not butter spread on top (laughs) like for breakfast, your body's going to be just not firing on a lot of levels and it know it needs more nutrients. But if you've never eaten the foods that give you those nutrients, it can't give you the cues or the cravings really for those foods. So you end up kind of like, well, I need something. So I'm going to eat more. And, you know, it's almost like this underlying like base mechanism where the body is trying to get you the nourishment, but uh, just not getting it. Right. So you have like this kind of underlying hunger that is never satiated because your body's not happy with what it's um getting yeah
0: that's a great point point. and it's like we just we don't we've missed the interpretation of these signals right and we've missed um like it should be weird if you're constantly consuming food and yet you feel you have to consume more like that i i don't think that's how our ancestors bodies worked um but it i mean i guess I guess it's in line with a lot of things where people are just kind of doing, but not actually thinking of what they're doing. Um, I think another little tiny change that I've started to advocate for in in sort of my inner and sort of middle circle of friends and colleagues is trying your own mini fasting experiment. And all it is, is just skip breakfast one day, just skip breakfast one day and be mindful and just notice, how do you feel? How do you feel at lunchtime? or just after lunch compared to how you typically feel. Yeah. And it's funny how something that small, which is not very intimidating, right? Like, you know, it opens up the door to, well, isn't breakfast the most important meal of the day? It's like, well, where'd you hear that? Like, when do that? That's, do you know where that came from? Do you know where that thing came from? Cause I'm pretty I, sure I, it came from yeah. something related to the food industry.
1: Uh, yeah it's probably from cereal or something you know <laughs> no, um, I don't actually know thought. where it came from yeah um I mean there's also like the underlying thing that um when we talk about fasting, it's, you know, just really like we're trying to think of like the time between meals, like time of non-food consumption. So your digestive tract can heal from eating. So you can absorb all the nutrients and then kind of your body cannot be digesting food for a well, while And it can focus on other stuff because digesting food takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, so I think it could have also come from the fact that, you know, when people were, you know, working, like a lot more physical lives or maybe like, you know, we're away from their houses for a while, you know, you would eat a big breakfast, but then you wouldn't really eat again until the evening. Right. Like you would kind of have these long, so you'd have, you know, you'd, you'd have dinner and then you'd have 12 hours and then you'd have, you know, sleep and rest and you'd have breakfast and then you'd maybe have another 12 hours. So I think the big thing is, is the, the three square meals a day. I think that's the thing that's kind of out of line because we, you definitely don't need three square meals a day. Um, you know, as like a set thing, right? Like, sure, some people do. And that's like if you pay attention to your internal cues and that's where you end up, that's great. Some people need to eat a great big breakfast and then just like a snack, like in the afternoon, and they're good. Some people don't eat breakfast at all and they just have like, you know, a couple like meals, a lunch and a dinner. Um, and everyone's so different. And I think that's why it's important to experiment with it because. Um, think a lot of times, like, I think the best way to try fasting is like what you're talking about is you skip breakfast and push it. um, Because you're already in a fasted state when you wake up in the morning, because you've been sleeping for eight or nine hours, right? Right. Um, But the other way to try fasting, too, is, you know, you eat your breakfast, you eat your lunch, and then you kind of like don't eat much in the evening. Um, So what this actually allows is, you know, say you eat your last meal at 4pm or something, um, and then you go to bed at 10 you've still got quite a big fasting window there and not having like all this food this digestion that needs to happen in your system like when you go to bed actually can really help you get like a more deep restorative sleep too because your body doesn't have to deal with like this giant meal you just threw down before you lay down and went to bed
0: that's a great point and like though yeah that's so true and people just have to be comfortable experimenting and you know that that skip breakfast little step was actually based on a story someone told me where uh this lady had to get a blood test so she's like i, ha- I was told i had to be on an empty stomach so she's like i skipped breakfast and i felt like soup i felt like a wonder woman at lunchtime and i was like yeah see when you don't eat and she was used to eating like a really big you know a big smoothie and like toast and all this kind of stuff that she thought was a way to start her day that was good and then she had this single use case where she had to skip breakfast. And then she realized, Oh my goodness, I feel totally different at lunchtime. I don't feel foggy. I don't feel my whole morning was really productive. And I mean, good on her for sort of realizing that, right? Like being self-aware enough to, to see that difference. But I think another weird thing with this thing of constantly eating is that some of the fitness world and in particular bodybuilding has pollinated by you know by mistake in my opinion into the realm of the normal eater where Mm -hmm. you see these people trying to achieve these certain looks and in order to do that they have to eat way more frequently and a certain kind of food which for their specific use case might be appropriate but for health and for optimal function i don't think that that aligns and i think some of those things have weaseled in where people just accepted them is that something you see
1: yeah. A hundred percent. Right. Um, so, you know, when I, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, if I say like, I want you to picture, you know, a, uh, a healthy, like adult male, right? Like most times, like in most people listening, what do you think? Right. Well, all of us, you know, you've got a six pack, you've got someone who's pretty well muscled. Like that's like a men's that's what magazine. I, <laughs> that's what I think of too. Men's health magazine, right. It's, <laughs> it's what I'm conditioned to think of as well. Yeah. Um, and that is, Outward physical appearance. It, you know, it's not necessarily internal health um, it's really just this, it's kind of like the, the tomato thing, right? Like we make these, you know, perfect tomatoes and ripen them. And really there's a shell of a tomato there that looks great. It's red and it, you know, it looks juicy, but there's no flavor inside. You know, honestly, this is like the same kind of thing. We see a human and we're like, wow, they look super healthy and fit, but you know, the inside are they? And you know, the answer is, you know, I mean, sometimes they are and, and sometimes they aren't, but you know, the appearance of like you know, a muscular body and that kind of stuff is not, it's not synonymous with health um, to put it there. And I, I think, um, you know, growing up and you read men's health and you read, you know, you see like the internet and ads and all this stuff. And we're inundated with the idea that if you're not, you know, muscular for a male or, or, you know, quite lean for a woman, then you're not healthy. And I think that's just false on so many levels. But um, just to get back to the food question there, I, the bodybuilders to maintain that kind of muscle mass you need to take in a serious amount of calories um you know and if you're a a teenager like in you know 17 18 year old and you've got a fast metabolism you know some teenagers their resting metabolism is 2500 calories a day that's like how many calories they need to just like exist as a teenager <laughs> oh. so to put on muscle like man, like you've got to be like 4,000 calories plus if you want to see any sort of gain because you're going to go to the gym. They usually lift really hard, like a couple hours, you know. So they, they need to consume, you know, 3,000, 3,500 calories just to like break even now. So like to actually put on muscle mass, you need four or 5,000 calories. Well, four and 5,000 calories of like nutritious food that's not like candy or junk food is, is a ridiculous. It's a lot of food. Like, you need to eat consistently. And I think that's where you get these articles where, like, people, you know, it's to get you to 5,000 calories a day. And it's like, you got to eat your four or five meals a day. You've got to have protein at each meal. And why that's important is we only absorb a certain amount of protein kind of each time we eat. So, you know, it's kind of like 20 to 30 grams, somewhere in there, person dependent. But if you have, you know, 60 grams of protein in a protein shake, um, in one sitting, you don't, di- you don't absorb all of it. You absorb some of it. So that's why the recommendation is like, you know, these guys keep hitting their protein every three hours to like make sure their protein is high enough to fuel this massive amount of muscle synthesis they're requesting of their body. Um, and, and that's where you get this this cycle, right? And um, it, it can be good in the short term. And, and you know, if, if that's what your goal is, and I, you know, I think you just have to be honest with yourself is you know, like health and like lots of muscle like aren't synonymous. So if you want to get a lot of muscle, you have to put your body in a pretty like intense state and you have to be really focused on nutrition. And it's uh, definitely not like uh, something that's going to give you longevity because you're really taxing your digestive system and that kind of stuff. But you know, if, if that's what you want for short term gains, you just need to be honest with yourself and be like, you know, I'm doing this not for health. I'm doing this because I want this outward physical appearance. Um, and I wish people would focus, you know, more on the inside and outside, but I know that's not always possible. And I, I definitely agree with, you know, lifting weights and, and working out more so than being sedentary on the couch. So, you know, a tricky subject.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just like this, there needs to be some nuance explored and some clarification because every teenage boy wants to look good for the girls, wants to go to the gym and have big biceps. So they almost like self indoctrinated into this fitness culture, which you're right, is not necessarily, it's not to say that it's always opposed to health, but you know, the people that you see doing the craziest things, I think at any elite level, there is a health trade-off, hands down. I haven't seen, you know, like maybe even one day I said, maybe not chess. And I was like, wait a minute, they're sitting for a lot of time. So apart from the standing chess player, (laughs) there's a trade-off. And so if you're doing anything at the highest level, uh, I think most of those people know that they're, they're sacrificing a bit of their health in order to push forward in one specific direction. And that's fine as long as you know what you're doing. And like you said, being honest with yourself is the biggest thing there. And, you know, I watched a um, I think it was a strongman documentary, and you really see how food can become a burden for people who are trying to put so much mass on their bodies, where yeah. literally, um like in one of the guys in this documentary said, the hardest thing is eating and when he said that, I was kind of confused. He's like, literally, I dread eating because I do it all day long. I literally force feed myself. I was, I was like, this is the human foie gras just to look muscular. This is so crazy. And it's really, uh, I think it really opened my eyes to the fact that like, if you use food as a tool to do something unnatural, food can turn into something that's really not very enjoyable. And that kind of sucks because a big part of food, I think, in a healthy relationship with food is getting pleasure from food. Like food is it's something that should be naturally reward innately rewarding based on your kind of uh, ancestral signals. And uh, I think some people have lost that, not that obviously that was an extreme example, but you know, the average person looks at food as almost like, Oh, I got to eat this because I want to look this way. It's like a path for change, but not something to appreciate. And I think part of having a good relationship with food is also just enjoying food and being comfortable that some, you don't always have to eat perfect stuff, but you have to keep it in balance, and you have to you know look at food as something that is very important, valuable, and can have pleasure derived from it um, and and I think we've just as a culture we've sort of lost that and gotten off the path a bit
1: yeah, no, uh, totally, and i think it's it's so important you know for we talked about this last time for people to just like start to pay attention to your internal cues and what makes you feel healthy and happy and uh, you know I think we all have this like uh influence by the media to look a certain way and you know i i actually watched something um that al- like almost shocked me the other day um I, I if anyone follows crossfit i don't know if you follow crossfit at all nick but you know matt fraser is um kind of like been the guy that's won the crossfit games in the last you know four years or so and he's yep. you know like the proclaimed fittest man you know with regards to crossfit and that kind of stuff and i was watching an interview with him and he was saying that you know when he's kind of done with CrossFit, he would like to uh, you know maybe train for fitness and maybe train to kind of like you know have a six pack and look good at the beach and and this is someone who in my mind is like like already like looks like a men's health magazine person right, in my true. opinion right he's like lifting weights multiple times a day he's insanely strong like he's just. Incredible does. Yeah, it's talented, exercise. That's all, he does. <laughs> yeah, that's all he does. And, and I think, and, you know, he looks great. He's got and, and then like, but in his mind, he's like, geez, I'd really like to one day, you know, try to like, lean out a bit. And I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you know, so and, and then you weird. just see how, how deep it is in our culture. And, yeah. um, you know, if, if this guy is thinking it, uh, there you go. Every, everybody else is thinking it to a degree as well.
0: Yeah. And I think it starts with Ken and Barbie, like literally it starts. And I don't know how pervasive those, you know, characters are in our society anymore. Like I don't, I know my nephew's not going to play with Ken and Barbie. He likes trucks. Um, But you know, I think that for a lot of people um, and even like, uh, you know, you look at some Disney movies with the new brain and you see where some of our perceptions start. Like I know the other day I was watching, I don't know, like in passing, I caught a clip of like, one of the Disney cartoons where, and, and it might've even been Cinderella or something. Maybe it wasn't Cinderella, but anyway, you see the shoes they're wearing and you're like, that's where it starts. That's where we teach kids that that is beautiful, that a princess wears pointed shoes. And I think we see it with body shapes, but we see it with a lot of things with clothing. And it's like, we've programmed our kids through what seems innocent to actually think a certain way without really realizing it. Um, And I think I just read Bob Iger's, uh, kind of biography. And I think, I think the world of Disney is shifting towards more culturally, um, like value-based, um, I think they have a value-based content future where they're going to basically reshape norms by reinventing some of these old classics with modern characters that reflect a better value set, which was really, um, cool to kind of read about, but I think that it goes deep. And we don't even realize how deep it goes, but you're right. These perceptions of what fit looks like, or um, I want to look like this. It's like such a distraction away from health a lot of times. And I, I really think it hits our self-confidence and self-esteem to the point where we might not make as good decisions because our perception is just uh, kind of skewed a little bit.
1: Yeah, totally. And I, I think, um, I think we, you just have to acknowledge that that exists, right? We're like it exists in the culture, and just be aware. And, and it's just like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a task for all of us to work towards, like, kind of like trying to help and control that and into shape, you know, like, like media and stuff to, you know, hopefully be more positive in the future and inclusive. Um, but I think it, it, you just have to really acknowledge right now that it does exist and we are inundated with, um, you know, whether subliminal or obvious messages that we need to look and behave a certain way. And, you know, like another great example, uh, is people are like, you know, you got to sleep eight hours a night. Otherwise you're, you're not healthy. You don't have enough sleep and you see it with there too. And I know people that can sleep, you know, seven hours a night and they're very healthy humans and that's how much time their body needs to rest. And I know people that need to sleep 10 hours. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's this thing where we put these ideals on ourselves as, you know, what's healthy for one human is healthy for all humans. And uh, it's just not true. I agree. I definitely released
0: that. When I read uh, Why We Sleep at Matthew Walker, I was like, oh, sweet, we should be given between seven and nine. That's, you know, an average of eight, that's great. I think most people should be getting that. And then the more I've more people I've spoken to, the more I realized like, yeah, that was just it's like saying vegetables are good for you. So you should eat vegetables. It's like eight hours of yeah. sleep is good for you. But you don't have to only eat vegetables, right? Like and you don't have to only eat certain vegetables. Not every vegetable is gonna agree with every person. So there's like the principle, but then that needs to be separated from the individual encouragement just to, to experiment and see what works for you and what and what patterns do you recognize. Because in certain times of your week or, or, or on really heavy days where you've got a lot of emotional stuff to process, maybe you need more sleep and it doesn't, you know, fitting into these cookie cutter molds seems to be something that never ever works with humans. But I think the general principles can be helpful if they're just taken as that principles, that's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like rough outlines for, you know, things that tend to have positive outcomes. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Like just heuristics,
1: yeah. the simple, and this is, I think where people get
0: fired up on social media a lot. It's like, listen, we're trying to give general heuristics for the 99%. It's like, if yeah. you have a, a 0. 0.00001 congenital deformity at your toe, like I'm probably not going to talk about that because it's not something most people will struggle with. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just funny when there's, there's always an exception to the rule and people love pointing out exceptions, but they also a lot of times don't like to just take the essence of what the, you know, the principle you're trying to get out there and how that's going to help most people. You don't have to do exactly that, but it's really good to know and no one's being told that.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, second um, point. We- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead.
0: I was going to say the second point that we were going to talk about was navigating the supermarket. So unless... Uh, Is there any other uh, little tiny changes that you wanted to mention? Or do you want to get into that?
1: No, I think that sounds good. I think we kind of covered that, you know, um, you know, the main takeaways, right, are are when you're making tiny changes, additions are great. Like adding healthy food is the easiest and best thing to do. Um, But Subtracting like food that is detrimental to your health will give you the most like the best outcome. So I think just for people to keep that in mind that You know, we use dairy. Another good example is alcohol. Um, If you drink two beer a night and beer congests you and mess with your sleep, um, you can eat really healthy the other 99% of the time. And if you keep having those two beer at night, which for you react poorly, um, you're not going to get like the outcome that you want. But if all you do is remove those two beer and remove that congestion, um, you're going to get like a quite a noticeable change. So I think people just need to you know, to sometimes do the hard part to sometimes remove the thing that we're dependent or really enjoy, um, to see what the change is. And then kind of then you can outline or weigh the difference between, you know, okay, can I, can I really, like not eat cheese? Or, you know, can I just have a beer once a week? Or is this something that I actually really want in my life? And I accept that it makes me congested or give have these digestive issues.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I also love the one that you brought up about, potential flexibility in modifying dairy and having it be something where you don't buy so you don't have the temptation at home but having some inbuilt flexibility so that if you go somewhere and they're serving dairy it's not that you can't have it but it's the fact that you're not eating it every day is automatically going to be a massive bonus and maybe gives you a, a, a bigger um, sort of more obvious experiment to see how you actually feel after not eating it when you do eat it so uh, yeah I think those are some really good points and um, I think people can take a lot from those if, if they want to So let's talk about navigating the supermarket. So I think we both agree that when you can, farmer's market is a better place to go. There's just, it's just not a mine. It's a, it's not a minefield like the modern day grocery store is. And sometimes I will, you know, in the afternoons, you know, I'm in Canada, in Canada, cannabis is legal. I'll literally, it's almost like a, a workout for me to, to consume cannabis and go to the grocery store and try and stave off the temptation to buy shit. Um, it's like cold exposure for food. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's just, I, I live near a grocery store, so I do this, you know, once every couple of weeks. And I, it really made me notice a couple times ago that the first thing I see and the last thing I see is the worst thing for me. Mm-hmm. And it made me kind of sad that we've essentially engineered the modern day supermarket to be somewhere that's extremely hard to navigate for even a well-informed person. Like I would consider myself better than, better informed than the average person. And even I know that they are, engin- they are designing based on visual fields, based on locations, they are making it as easy as possible for you to buy the worst possible foods. And so I think navigating the grocery store, you know, I always, when we <laughs> taught the seminars in January, I tell people like, I go hunting every week. I don't hunt in nature. I go to the grocery store and buy groceries, which I consider hunting. And hunting is hard these days. It's hard to hunt yeah. for real food. And it's because it's, it's just really hard. You can definitely understand how the average person is is lost or is just given up because it's so confusing. So let's talk about some just basic, um, basic fundamental things that maybe to keep in mind in the grocery store. I think we, we both know stay near the perimeter. The middle ground is the bad ground. Uh, in terms yeah. of the most heavily processed stuff but what are some tips that you would give someone to just take with them as little tools in the tool belt when they are going to the grocery store
1: yeah definitely um you know the one of the big ones and i chat about with this people a lot and uh, of course uh, if as long as finances aren't an issue i i tell people to stock up on the like your grains and rices and those kind of stuff like stock up on them for like months like right. you shouldn't you shouldn't be going to the grocery store and like picking up like a small bag of rice every time. Um, you know, we got it like decision fatigue and you just, it should be like, you have like, you know, you know, five kilos of rice or quinoa or, and buckwheat and all this stuff. It should just be there. Like I really try to limit people's time in the grocery store. I, I think, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this as well in the past um, is you just kind of pop in every day and get what you want for dinner. Um, and it becomes this phenomenal time suck where you spend a lot of time there. Um, but so the first thing is to kind of like, you know, the non-perishables, like just stock up on and have. Um, the second one, you know, is, is uh, I recommend people shop once a week, twice if you need to get, you know, produce or stuff that kind of perishes in a couple days, um, but twice a week at most. And that you know, you're you're well fed <laughs> before you go in. You're not going to the grocery <laughs> store hungry. Yeah, people um, learn that. <laughs> yeah, um, and you have a list. Um, you know, and I don't have a list anymore. But essentially, uh, we buy like the same things. You know, like I buy like a. You know, I I don't go to the grocery store as much in the summer because we um really fortunate that we get most of our food from the local farms. Um, but in the winter when I'm going more regularly is. Um, you either have a list of what you're going to get or you kind of buy the same stuff. So you're not, you're not in that like, uh, like hunting mindset that you chatted about, right? right. You're not like kind of stalking through the aisles, you right. know, seeing what might be the easiest prey. You're kind of like going in there and you're just like, all right, like, okay, lettuce, kale, beets, carrots, you know, bananas, apples, okay, done here. And you just kind of, and then it's fast and you're in and out. Um, but people need to write a list for sure um, if they're, if they're not used to doing that. So a list and uh, the best thing to do is to write a list and just consider like what we call the outlier of the grocery store. Like you usually don't even need to go in the aisles at all. And I know that's common advice, but there's almost nothing good for you in the aisles, um, unless you need like a nice salsa or (laughs) something like that. Um, but it's mostly, you know, there's like a cereal aisle, there's like a chip and pop aisle. There's a, like, just don't even go down them. Yeah. Just remove that temptation. Yeah. It's not going to be helpful. Um, so normally when I go to the grocery store, I usually start with the produce. Um, and like I said, I usually tell people to have a list. I, if I'm, if people are really keen, I say, you know, you want 40 different types of plants per week, right? Um, normally you can tick off a couple of those with your grains and stuff like that. But you know, you're, you're, when you go to the grocery section, you want to buy greens, Um, you know, so spinach, arugula, kale, I usually get people to rotate their greens. So buy one or two greens. You want to buy some root vegetables, you know, carrots, beets, turnips, radishes, um, and then you want to get a little bit of fruit. Um, and I usually get, I think people kind of, you know, the, you know, the five servings of fruit and vegetables a day. Um, it's really, that's five servings of vegetables, uh, fruit optional, Right. Like yeah. it's not like you're gonna get apples, oranges, peaches, pears, plums, bananas, and you know, and some carrots. spinach maybe for salad on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, and carrots. Um it's kind of like, you know, I you know fruit is great, um, but it's not it doesn't give you nearly as much nutrients as vegetables do. Um so you're really wanting to load up like on your greens, on your root veg um, you know, avocados and that kind of stuff. So that's the first stop is just to really, you know, you should really be filling your cart up for the most part in the fruit and veggie section. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, as you move through, um, if you're going to buy meat from the grocery store, you know, uh, just kind of like do your assessment. Usually it's usually better to go to a butcher or to kind of like know where your products are coming from. Um, personally, what works for me, cause we do eat uh, meat in our household is, uh, we've just gone to a local farm, um, and we just, uh, pick up stuff every six months or so. And we have a deep freeze at home. So I don't even look at the meat section in the grocery store anymore. Um, and then from there, like it's, you're pretty much like for me, that's pretty much done. I've just gone in, I've got my fruits and veggies for the week. I have all my grains and stuff at home. Um, which I'll probably usually pick up at Costco anyway because it's less expensive. Um, and then and then you just leave. <laughs> you walk <Yeah>. away. <laughs> you yeah. don't meander through a couple aisles, <laughs> you know. It's so easy to be like, oh, geez, that's a nice-looking bag of chips.
0: <laughs> oh, dude, this whole <laughs> you know? COVID thing And then thing all
1: too. of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw even
0: more with COVID because I remember one day, like I had a really, I think I did like two podcasts, had a bunch of calls. Like I just was like a really... Energy-sapping day. Go to the grocery store, and sometimes I'll like walk over just to get a fruit, like for dessert. It gets me out of the house and gets me to go for a walk, and I'll pick a one fruit. And I remember after this really long day, I was like, you know, I, I I didn't go down any of the aisles I shouldn't have gone down, but I part of my brain visualized what was in those aisles, and I was just like, oh, okay, this is good. I'm making great decisions, and then because of COVID they're engineering the flow of traffic to like go around the long way. And then the last (laughs) stretch, I just get blitzed by walls of chips and all I bought some shit and I was just like, God damn it. They're just, they're making it so hard for the average person. It's just crazy. It just highlights that like the highest margin things are the shittiest things for you. And so the incentive structure, I remember going to a grocery store in Australia on a, on a random tangent here, but they didn't have any of the garbage. Like it was really powerful. I was like, this is the grocery store of the future. This can rescue supermarkets as a viable alternative or as a viable place to go and get food because they didn't, they literally just selected for the best stuff. And it wasn't like they had slightly healthier junk. They just didn't have any junk. And so there weren't really aisles. It was a very open layout. Um, and it was just really cool because every time you walk in there, there's no, the temptation isn't there. And they have a really, Um, strict filter for what they allow to be sold. Like I think they even had their standards written on the wall and it was pretty strict, which meant they didn't actually carry that many products, right? Like the average Uber market, which I call them these days, because they're so big, it, it carries like tens of thousands of products and it's overwhelming. It's actually like a sensory overwhelm when you go in there, all the colors and all the packaging and makes me extra sad when I see cartoons on the shittiest foods. Cause I'm like, those aren't trying to attract adults. Like adults aren't chasing cartoons. This is really weird that we still do this, but, um, I just think that there is a, there is a big opportunity for, you know, grocery or food selling retailers to create an environment that only allows healthy choices, make the healthy choice, the only choice. And I think yeah, it's just gotten really weird. Even labels, ingredient labels, are such a mess these days. Where there's like, you know, there's 75 different words for sugar. Like, why does that have to be a thing? Why do we? Why is there a need for that?
1: It's very yeah. confusing. No, it's 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 really. I mean, it's. I would love to see a grocery store that's taken like kind of the decision fatigue out of it, and it's just like you know everything here is healthy. Pick yep. what you want, because so it, it removes that like layer of like. You know, and you said it right there, it's like slightly less shitty foods. Um, like it's so easy to go down the chip aisle. And of course I've done this, right? And you're like, well, I'm not going to pick like the, the bottom of the barrel, like soy oil chips, but you're like, geez, there's like an organic bag of pretty <laughs> tasty looking lime <laughs> chips, right? And all of a sudden in your mind, you're like, well, I mean, I mean sure, it's, it's the healthier choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, and exactly. it's so easy, and, and my mind does it too. And and then all of a sudden, you've got like this nice six dollar bag of chips, and you're like, I can't believe I just spent six dollars on like a <laughs> couple pieces of corn, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's really but weird. But it, it's it's so easy, and that you know the supermarkets are conditioned to. You know, both of us are kind of like try to be aware of our food choices, and like I totally get caught in the trap sometimes too, and it, it definitely happens like when I'm tired or fatigued, and like you just see something and you're like like your body's like that would taste so good and you're like i 100 percent agree and you just can't yeah like you know you can't willpower it out of the yeah. like cart it just ends up in the cart and that's where it lives
0: <laughs> yep because you know and my <laughs> my brain does weird justifications that day where i bought the chips i was like if i don't buy these chips i'm gonna blast through instagram for an hour and i get home so i'm just gonna get these chips and walk around and maybe that's the lesser of two evils i don't know and yeah. even like a micro adjustment in in you know, those situations where sometimes you just want a snack. I think there's a difference between garbage, like junk and snacks. Like I love what Mark Hyman says. Like there's no such thing as junk food. There's junk and there's food. Let's not confuse the two. And so I think there is potential to buy snacks that are made for humans. Like if you can, you know, I have these, uh, these pop chips that I'll sometimes get, and there's three ingredients and I can read them all because they're real ingredients like that is a good snack. And I, I literally feel it. I don't feel miserable. I don't feel physically terrible after I eat some of those, even if I eat a good amount of them. So I think even a, a mid layer is okay. You don't have to eliminate all snacks, but like, you know, be versed enough to know, okay, if there's only three ingredients and I can read them all because they're things that I recognize in their primary state, that's probably way better than this, which has chemistry, experiment ingredients that I can't pronounce and that I've never seen before. Like, I think just little heuristics like that, where it's like, if you can pronounce everything and there's not very many of them, that's probably a better option. Um, a hundred percent, but you can't beat real food.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, uh, in our, you know, I, ideal world, you sure you want to eat real food hundred percent of the time, but I tell people like 80% of the time, that's yeah. like a realistic goal that gives you a lot of health, um, you know, a lot of bang for your buck kind of, so to say. And I think that's like, be happy with that. Like, unless you're dealing with like an autoimmune condition or like, you know, a more serious health concern, like, you know, the 80-20 rule is great. And it, it helps you kind of not feel so bad. Like when I do buy chips, I really enjoy the chips and they're fantastic. Too. And I, I don't even think about it again after that. I, I don't think negatively about them. I just, you know, it, it's it's just something that I consume and enjoy, and and I just don't end up buying it that much, right? But mm-hmm. I, it's because I kind of, in my mind, follow this eighty twenty rule, and it means that, like, when I have stuff that's, like, you know, not r- totally real food or not something that's completely nourishing to me, I'm totally okay with that because I think I've, like, kind of aligned my life choices in a way that my body is strong enough to handle like a little bit of, you know, cheap oils or that kind of stuff for, you know, that momentary satisfaction of deliciousness.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. A little bit of mouth pleasure is okay. <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah. I think eventually you get mouth pleasure from real food, but let's be real. When we totally. drink a delicious beer, we're not drinking it because it's healthy for us. Uh, exactly. We're drinking it because yeah. the, the, the benefit of having a, a delicious beer is worth the offset and we're not having 10 of them, Or maybe just have one or two, you know, like, I think you just got to own the decision. Like you said, it's like, if you're making that decision, own it, feel good about it, enjoy it. That's a really important one. And then don't, don't beat yourself up over it. Like it's, it's okay. If you're doing a lot of good stuff, right. Then you're allowed to do some of the not good stuff. In fact, I think people who never do the, the not so good stuff are a myth. Like it's not, I don't think that's healthy either. So
1: No, and it's it's not, right? And it, it gets into a thing, you know, where you become so restrictive with maybe your lifestyle that maybe you won't go out for a beer or a cider or drink with someone, yeah. um, you know, or, or just, and you know, like people that have alcohol stuff aside, like it's, if you're restricting it just for the sake that you think it's unhealthy for you um, it it can be, it can be challenging for sure. Um, and, and if you start to kind of expand that control to other areas of your life, it becomes, you know, something that's more of a detriment than a benefit. Yeah, I agree.
0: Okay. I think that was pretty good. Anything else to chat about with the supermarket? I think those are some good little. No,
1: I think, I think that's good. It's just, you know, the supermarket is for, you know, ideally the supermarket's for fruits and vegetables, um, you know, and grains and that sort of stuff. And then you're, you know, if you, if you can fit a little, a little deep freeze into your home, I, I really recommend if you're going to consume animal products is like, go meet a farmer, chat with them, know all their practices, um, buy directly from them. Um, they'll like butcher it, package it. And, and then you have like a deep freeze full of, you know, the, the highest quality stuff you can get. Um, and you just don't have to go and like, Every time you go to the market, like try to figure out like, geez, is that like, is that meat old? Has it been out for a while? Like there's so many things with like, they can color beef to make it look a little bit redder, like when you buy it. And there's, there's so much stuff. It just like, just eliminate, (laughs) just eliminate that, especially with animal products. Like if you can just sort that out, it it removes a lot of decision and a lot of like uh, ability for the supermarket to kind of trick you into buying stuff that maybe you wouldn't uh, initially buy.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, <clears throat> some people that I've had that conversation with are like, yeah, but it's more effort. It's like, well, of course it's more effort. Why don't you get Uber eats every day? I mean, that's the least effort, but you don't do it. And, and realistically, if you actually take it in the, for the long game, it's like, well, if you put in the effort to research and you go, go out and buy food, even if it's a much further place and it's less convenient twice a year, think of how many times you don't have to buy it during the year and how much time that saves. Like in, in the long game, it's actually way more convenient and way less, um, effortful um, yeah. But no, and, it is. And sometimes putting effort is actually a good thing. That's another thing. It's like there's nothing wrong with putting effort if it matters you put effort. This is this is how the you know how it works. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's just about the experience, right? And, and you know, like uh, if you say your farmer's like four hours away, but that's the one that you want and they follow all the, the ethical and quality practices and you just make like an adventure out of it. People, yes. you know, it's not just about getting point A to point B and back again. It's about, well, hey, you've got this opportunity to go explore a new area. Like, geez, I usually go for a run or a bike ride or or you'll just check out a new market. It's, I mean, it's just, again, that's a bigger thing about just kind of being like open to new experiences too, right? Like there's, it really just comes down to perspective, right? Like you can look at your entire life as like a chore or a task, or you can kind of look at it as an opportunity for uh, exploration and learning and growth. And it's just a mindset shift. Like those two people would go through the exact same life, but one would get a lot of pleasure and satisfaction from it. And the other one would kind of, you know, feel like a lot lower and kind of really struggle with it.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. Great way to tie that one off. Um, so the last one that we want to talk about was essentially crafting the argument that spending more on food is cheaper in the long run, because I think that that's something a lot of people intuitively would probably agree with, but I don't think people, I don't think it resonates or has been explained in a way that makes it tangible enough to actually adopt as a, as a value in, in how they shop. And Um, you know, I like the, I I like cars. My dad liked cars. My whole family's into cars. I, I've realized that cars are something to just look at that are beautiful and that I have no desire to actually have crazy cars because it's just a, it doesn't fit into my value structure, but I think they're nice. So I often come up with car analogies. And I think, you know, if I put the question to someone and said, you can go to a place, you can go to a gas station and there's gas that costs a dollar per liter and there's gas that costs 50 cents a liter but there's a little asterisk on the 50 cents a liter. And basically that what it says is this gas is much cheaper, but your car's no, not going to run near as well. This is going to cause your car to break down on a semi-regular basis. And it's also going to have an unpredictable major repair needed on a fairly, like on a monthly interval and your car could explode anytime. Basically um, mm-hmm. it's probably better to go with the more expensive, reliable fuel, like long-term that's how you preserve your vehicle and how you get the best performance out of your vehicle and how you actually remove way more stress from your life. And I think that can be paired over to food. It's like you can buy food that's cheap. Yes. But it's also not going to give you the things you need to feel good. It could cause you problems on a regular interval, whether you realize or identify those problems associated with the food or not. Um, And you know, spending a little bit more is oftentimes the way to go long-term whether it's your vehicle, or whether it's your body. And I think the bodys I mean, you can get another car, you can't get another body. So it's like, I think we just, I think analogies and, and I still got to try and work on analogies of food, because I think it's a powerful way in to get people to be like, Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of true. But you know, if you were going to make the argument to someone spending more on food is cheaper in the long run. Um, how would that how would that conversation go?
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I think um, it's, it's interesting because it's a different conversation. Um, You know, I've got lots of friends that are American and it's a different conversation when you do and don't have a good healthcare system for sure. Mm, Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Because it is, it is, it's actually quite easy in the States to explain to people that like, you know, like a hundred thousand dollar bill um, when you're 50 and then when you're 55 again and then when you're 60 uh, is pretty nice to avoid <laughs> um, for us <laughs> yeah. for us here we obviously don't have you know we're incredibly fortunate with our healthcare care system um, to not like maybe have those kind of like lingering fears over like major illnesses kind of costing you a lot mm-hmm. um, you know and our insurance is pretty good but what, what I usually kind of like chat with people about is is it's kind of like you know, to use another kind of example is it's kind of like, you know, compound interest, right? And I chatted a little bit about this with you on Slack there, but it's, you know, every positive choice you make is you're throwing like a dollar in the bank and, and that dollar like kind of feeds and nourishes your system and kind of gives you a benefit into the future, right? Mm -hmm. So every dollar you put in now becomes, you know, $2 in 10 years, so kind of, you know, and the more kind of like money you saved up, the the healthier you'll be, you know, um, when you get older and it's, it's just those small changes, right? It's like, okay, I have a choice now to say, you know, like a poor choice is you take a dollar out and a good choice is you put a dollar in, but every dollar you put in, if it's there in 10 years, it'll get another dollar kind of thing. It, right. It's easy to just kind of like be like, well, I, you know, again, the 80 20 thing, you shift it over and you know, well, 80% of the time I want to be putting like, like money in the bank. I want to be eating healthy. I want to be like making sure I have healthy joints and good mobility and a good digestive system and uh, like all this stuff so that, you know, when I'm, you know, 60, 70, I can still live the life I'm living now. And I think it's really kind of clear um, now that lifestyle plays such a huge role. And, you know, I've been fortunate to meet some 70 year olds that are, in as good a shape as I am now. Um, and it's, it's really inspiring. And I, I think for most people, uh, and for me, I needed to see that mm-hmm. I needed to meet someone that's made good choices, um, and is a healthy, active adult and they're older, like 70, 75, and they're still, Mountain biking, they're still trail running, they're still weightlifting, they're still happy, they still are pursuing like their goals in life. Um, And then I see that, and then you know, you turn around and you see another person that's you know made different choices and maybe like optimized stuff when they were younger. um, And they are you know, they have no mobility, they're in a lot of pain, like you see. And obviously, there's other things in life that contribute to that, but for the most part um, for me, I, I had to see it. I just have someone kind of like come and be like, Hey yeah. Matt, this is what it looks like. if You take good <laughs> care of yourself. And I was like, I 100% want to be the person that's 70 years old and is still mountain biking, like without question. And yeah. when I yeah. see that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to reverse that. And like, what can I do now to maintain that goal? Cause like for me, like my quality of life is dependent on like being able to move is a big thing. Um, you know, so I want to be able to go up mountains. I want to be able to just be outside and explore. And initially I was like, I'm not sure if people do that when they're 70. And then when I was like, (laughs) wow, people can do that when they're 70 and 80. Um, I read a really great article on a guy, I think he's passed away now called Don Wildman. Um, and he was like 85 and he did this like, like pretty intense, like gym workout three days a week. Um, and he like, he logged something like a hundred days of hell skiing when he was like in his early eighties. And <laughs> I was amazing. like, I was like, shut the front door. Like that is, I mean, inspirational. And that's not where I'm going for it, Cause that's like a level of fitness I don't need in my life. Right. But, to but see, if he can do just that, to see that, if he, yeah. if he can do that, I can sure hike up a mountain when I'm 70. Right. Yeah. That's Um, a a great point. And I think,
0: I mean, you just, you witness someone with a very big sum in their health savings bank account. And I think one thing that needs clarifying too is like, it's not, you don't have to sacrifice to save those health dollars. Like a lot of people think, oh, I got to do all this shit that I don't want to do now to kick the can later and be healthy later. It's like, actually, you feel better by doing that also. Like not not only is it enjoyable as you're doing it, but it gives you way more at the end. Um, which is, I think part of people's perception is like, oh, I got to sacrifice now for health later. It's like, actually you don't, it's the same thing.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I I think that's, you know, a thing that people just need to wrap their heads around is like, once you start making these choices, you know, and, and reduce some inflammation from your body and your hormones start working a little bit better. And then all of a sudden, like, you're just a little bit more on the optimistic side of things. Your mood is a little bit better. You feel better. You know, it's like all of a sudden like you're in this positive space or positive vibration or whatever you want to think about. And it's, it's because your food and your movement nourished you to get there. And, and I think that's our natural state. And, you know, I think it's easy to get off track from that, but our natural state is to be kind of in this positive, healthy vibration. And, you know, when we align towards it, you end up like living a life that's just a lot more enjoyable, you know, in my opinion.
0: Yep. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, it's like people say that real food is expensive, but I think there's two two things that I would challenge with that. It's like number 1, real food is expensive if you don't consider the cost of disease on the back end from eating shitty food. So that's one thing. It's like if you take if you account for the externality of disease and dis- and suffering caused by poor food choices, then real food is actually really cheap. But not only that, but I think that one for one I, I don't know if it's completely true that eating real food is inherently more expensive than, than eating junk. I, d- I really don't think the disparities is big. I think people just don't understand. Like it doesn't mean buying the more expensive organic thing at Whole Foods, right? Like to- totally. buying a bunch and, of and vegetables I mean... to make a salad is not that expensive.
1: You know, and I think it, like willingness goes a long way, but th- there's so many vegetables and plants even here that exist like outside that are that are more nutritious than the stuff you buy in the grocery store and they grow in abundance in wild right. form here. Yeah. Um, and you could easily go pick a salad out of it. And, you know, like a, a great example that always comes up is, you know, for some reason we demonized dandelions. It's like oh my a God. Weed I was just going like, to tell you a story basement. about that.
0: <laughs> keep going, keep going.
1: Root has like um, anti-cancer properties and there's like a fantastic tea and I I think there's so much of that that if you're willing to kind of like just learn and look I I think like most nutrition stuff it it, it doesn't have to be that expensive but you have to be willing to put in the time to educate yourself.
0: Yeah and I was just going to bring up a dandelion story because my (laughs) uh, brother's wife is Italian and they always talk about how they fry up dandelion flowers um, and use dandelion greens in salads. And so one day I was just outside. I got a balance beam outside, and I just ate a dandelion. I was like, I gotta see what this is all about. And I can definitely confirm to people that it's a different taste. The greens were actually not that bad, but the flour, I wouldn't recommend mowing down on
1: flowers all the <laughs> so, time. But... Yeah, the flour, you definitely should cook. <laughs> yeah. experiment yeah. whatever. A
0: good result from the experiment, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend crunching down on flowers. But but yeah, you're right. Like things, weeds that we get rid of and try and like literally my entire backyard was a giant salad at one point. And it was like, if I, if we just look at those as weeds, we miss out on the fact that like, wow, literally nature is abundantly growing things that we can eat and that are insanely good for us. And we just aren't paying enough attention to appreciate it. And you know, it doesn't have to be expensive to be healthy. You just have to, like you said, you have to, the more expensive thing you have to spend on is your time understanding, not actually financial um, financial dollars. So And I know that yeah, totally.
1: there's always a way around.
0: Yes, for sure. And Michael Pollan, I think one thing that I I really like, um, one kind of line about spending more on food being cheaper in the long run is something from Michael Pollan's book where he talks about the relationship between percent of income spent on food and the national percent of income spent on healthcare. And the numbers here are actually really staggering because in 1960, Americans spent 17.5% of their income on food and Mm -hmm. 5%. 0.2% 0.2% of national income was spent on healthcare. So 17% on food, 5% on healthcare. Since then, the numbers have essentially flipped. So now Americans spend 9% on food. And interestingly, five, only 5% of that is actually on food that they eat at home. So half of it is on food that they're not eating in their house. And healthcare has climbed to 16%. So percent of income on food goes from 17 to 9 And really only 5 if you exclude meals out of the house and healthcare has gone from five to 16. So it's like that inverse relationship, I think speaks for itself to the fact that you spend more on food in the short term, it's going to be significantly cheaper in the long run.
1: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And that's a great example. And, you know, there's this discussion, then there's a bigger discussion too, especially in the States of, you know, just like, making food available, right? There's like food deserts and stuff like that. So I do know that some people don't have the choice and kind of get stuck living off of like convenience stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's definitely like a bigger thing where like, you know, it really needs to be lobbied to make sure like uh, like food stamps and food programs and, and these kind of government funded programs are, are providing people with like actually healthy, nutritious food, um, not just access to like um, pop and chip and food like products, which are, you know, heavily subsidized. Um, you know, which is a huge discussion altogether. But, um, you know, I think for the most part, I think a lot of people can make better decisions. And then, you know, the people that can make better decisions need to lobby so that everyone has the opportunity to make those better decisions.
0: Yeah. And one of the things we talked about when we in this food section of the seminar was like, every single time you buy food, you're voting. You're totally essentially voting for what kind of food you want to be available, what kind of food gets put on the shelves. And so long as we keep voting to keep the shitty stuff on the shelves, they're going to keep being there. And, you know, I always had this funny thought experiment where I was like, if you're an uber billionaire, it would be really cool to just take one of those bees and just create the broccoli lobby and just <laughs> create some competition <laughs> for the sugar lobby. And I think even the topic of sugar, I kind of went down that rabbit hole at one point um, and it might even be, if you're interested in it, um, doing a whole, a whole conversation on just sugar and, and the path of sugar, because I think the the sugar presence in our modern food landscape has changed in the not so distant future to where now it's like almost out of control and you see it with, um, you know, all these preventable diseases like diabetes, obesity, all this kind of stuff, metabolic disease. So maybe a topic that we can riff on in future, but I think that was, uh, I think that was a really potent and, and more importantly, practical, um, conversation on just like helping give people some tiny tips, giving them some pragmatic stuff to use in the supermarket. Um, and also just probably, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think that made a strong case to at least put it on people's radar that spending more on food in the short term is cheaper when it comes to the long run in terms, when you factor in all the externalities of health and, um, and actually healthy food doesn't have to be crazy expensive, um, and grow something. That was another big point. Anything to to wrap up?
1: No, I, no, I think that's good. And then I think, you know, the other thing that should just be mentioned is, you know, regardless of what your income level is like, um, just make the, the changes you can Right, like, uh, like for a lot of people, you know, like, you know, brown rice, which can be bought in bulk and is not that expensive, is a great alternative to white rice you know, like there's small changes like that that can be made that, you know, that people on most income levels can do. And I I think it's important to realize that you don't have to go out and buy all organic produce and, and, you know, live in harmony with the world to kind of like start off, like just start with what you can do. Um, If you can't buy organic, it doesn't matter buying, um, you know, buying fruits and veggies that are non-organic and then just giving them a little wash in the sink. Um, and that kind of stuff is much better than buying non-food products anyway. So, yeah, just start, start where you can and start with what your income is. Um, you don't need to kind of invest, you know, if you're on minimum wage, you don't need to invest 80% of your income into eating healthy. Um, right. You just need to kind of make better choices um, yeah. and be happy with the choices you can make. Um, because, you know, it's definitely been shown that your perspective on food, like kind of viewing the food you're eating in a positive atmosphere as, you know, being grateful for it and thinking the food's going to nourish you plays a big role. So even if you can't buy organic food, I think it's important to still like be of the mindset that this food is still nourishing you, that it's still good food. Because if your mind is, well, non-organic food has poisonous pesticides on it, and it's going to be bad for me. If you think that way, you can like kind of create that that reality for yourself. So, you know, just being careful of your thoughts and and being positive of whatever shift and change you can make.
0: Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think, you know, oftentimes the people who have loud voices are talking about their level 90, right? Like the place in their journey where they are right now is very different from the place they started. So, you know, one of the big things that I try and always be conscious of and and, um, embed into any content that TFC puts out is like, talk about our level one right? Talk about our level one and know that for people to take responsibility for them to be able to have the ability to respond and make better choices, they first need awareness. So giving, you know, inviting people to dig into getting some more awareness so that they can make better choices. And then also emphasizing the level one instead of level a hundred to make it more tangible and make it easier, simpler. Um, and, uh, anyway, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time today and having another conversation and, uh, as just like last time, I'm excited for the next one we do down the road. And if, uh, if anyone has any questions, um, I don't know if there's anywhere in particular that you would want someone to direct you. I know you've got a couple, uh, awesome blogs written in, uh, in TFC app. Um, and Matt is the food team leader and has contributed a lot of the food content for the footner program. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope that information, um, is, is relevant and Hopefully it gives you some benefit in your life and we'll catch you on the next show. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. No worries.